Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 13th, 2018. This is episode 2181 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Tuesday, and even though we did a change-up yesterday, didn't do a feedback show, uh, we're not going to do one today. We're going to stick with the Just Jack show uh, of two days in a row. And today we're going to do uh, a homestead updates at Nine Mile Farm, because there's a lot going on here and a lot of things changing and stuff like that. And I just think it'll be interesting and it'll be a good show. And this show was actually built on kind of chats with Jack. I mean, if you think about it, for the first 18 months, I did do some feedback because that was possible in the car, but there were no interviews. There were no call-in shows. Uh, it was me and my car, and we're going back to 2008 here, almost 10 years ago now. And I would just get in the car and talk to y'all. And that's what built this show. And uh, sometimes I think we need to do a little bit more of that. And whenever I've run a poll and said, what are your favorite shows It'll, it'll move around with, you know, is it the feedback or the interviews or whatever for second place or is it the calls, what have you. But it's always the standalone shows that seem to be most people's favorites. So I try to give you more of what you like and I think it's just a good time to do that. And, uh, again, I just, you know, I took a long walk today on the property. The property's only three acres, but depending on the path you take through it, and I just stayed on two of the three acres today. You can walk a good couple miles on two acres just by meandering around. And I did that and thought about all this stuff and thinking about all the stuff I got to get done. And I, I figured it'd be a good day to talk about that. <clears throat> Before we do, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason at Directive21.com. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? I, I know this is craziness. But the Berkey guy sells Berkey water filtration systems. That's what he does, and that's what he specializes in. He also has a lot of other great stuff for your prepping needs at directive21.com. And I'll tell you what, you can get a, I mean, I think people know that like the gold standard in water filtration for preppers especially is the Berkey water filter system. They just know that. A lot of people sell them. It's not like they have one guy that you can get them from, but there is only one Berkey guy. He's been with Berkey for well over a decade. He's one of their number one dealers in the world. He's a maniac at customer service, and he's been a strong supporter of this show since he joined us in 2009 as a sponsor. Here we sit at 2018, he's still there. So if you're going to get a Berkey or filters for your Berkey or check out other stuff for your prepping needs, go to directive21.com first. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, who I call the original Survival Podcast sponsor. And we're going to talk about a little bit today the fact that we've been around almost 10 years now and the journey that we've taken together. But almost through that entire journey was Vic Rontala and Safe Castle Royal, the place that has everything and anything you can think of for your prepping needs. They've got it all, man. And I'll tell you how long he's been a sponsor. He was a sponsor before he was a sponsor. Because the guy was asking, we were three months into the show, and he was asking to be a sponsor, and I would not take a sponsor yet, because I didn't have enough of an audience. I didn't think it was right to take a sponsor. And he just said, when you're ready, let me know. He's been with us that long. They now have a discount membership program that costs $29 a year. If you're an MSB member, they'll give it to you for free for life. There isn't even another way to get a lifetime membership to the Safe Castle discount program other than through the MSB. So strong supporter, lots of great stuff, great service, great pricing, and a way to save money, all from one sponsor. So make sure you check out safecastleroyal.com. 
Next up, let's take a look at the year in history. This year we are up to the year 110, and we have The Silk Road, contributed by David Verne at tspwiki.com. During the 60s to the 80s of A.D., the Han Dynasty in China greatly expanded their territory and brought order to the northern areas of Tibet. The Chinese built watchtowers and sent patrols rooting out bandits along trade routes. By 110, regular caravans were carrying silk and spices west. When they reached Parthia, they bartered for Roman gold, silver, glassware, pottery, and cloth. With safe trade routes and peace between Parthia and Rome, trade boomed, but not everybody was happy about this. The Roman Senate tried unsuccessfully to ban silk clothes because they were concerned about massive outflow of gold to China. The Silk Road wasn't a single route. It was a network of land and sea routes that stretched across Central Asia and the Indian Ocean. Trade existed sporadically before, but it took off between the Romans and the Han. The land routes would continue on and off depending on who controlled the territory, and it ended completely with the collapse of the Savagate Empire in the 1730s. The modern One Belt Road Initiative is a massive infrastructure project to build ports and highways in undeveloped countries between China and Europe. The project has been seen as both a potential benefit to global trade and an attempt by China to extend their political influence. Kind of like they did in the year 110. Here's what's interesting to me about this whole David's take on this, is the outflow of gold. See, it's one thing if you're bringing silk to a country and they're paying you in gold, but then they're selling you something you don't have and you're paying gold back. So there's some level of a balance in the currency. Because when you buy a silk garment, you have it for a time. When you own gold, when you have gold, you own it for time immoral and mortal until you spend it. And if it goes to China, even if the Chinese guy spends it with another Chinese guy who spends it with another Chinese and it circulates in their economy, the gold stays in China and continues to have value long after the silk has rotted and has gone to the compost heap. And I think that would be the main reason they had concern of the outflow of gold. And it's one of the actual benefits to the modern monetary system that I beat up on all the time for a lot of its stupidity. By being able to control your 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 supply of cash by being able to artificially expand and contract it to deal with things like trade deficits, you create more stability in your economy. So don't think that, you know, this is because this is what bothers me. People go out and spend like their whole savings on gold because they got scared. There is value to the U.S. currency and the modern banking system, currency system. It does work in its way, flawed though it is. So I just think it's an interesting thing there because if you were on a gold standard and you have a trade deficit with a country or the rest of the world like the United States tends to do, how long would it be before you were gold poor and garbage rich? Because even the fine quality goods eventually decay. If you think about this time, if you were buying pepper, well, that's great. You have the pepper, but they still have the pepper plantation and your gold. And it's it, it's interesting, and for all the flaws of the modern monetary system, it may have been the best choice at the time to get the job done. Because remember, even though the elites want to rob you, they also want you to be successful enough to be a cog in their machine. My take by Jack Spierko. With that, before we get into today's topic, do consider becoming a member of the MSB or Member Support Brigade. To learn more, you just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. It's the best way to support us, and we have enough discounts that are provided to you that you will probably get your money back and make a profit. 
So it's a pretty cool membership program. We'll leave it at that today so we can get right into this. So spring is starting to spring. And the 2018 plans are being executed and results are already being seen here at Nine Mile Farm. So I figured it's time for a Homestead Update show. Lots of things are new and different this year. We have major expansion on all the aquaponics and aquatic systems. New plans for the food forest with the ducks no longer involved and more. And as I was saying during the intro, it really has been an amazing journey that we've all been on together. This is our third property since we began TSP back in June of 2008. We started in Arlington, Texas. We moved to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and eventually here to the Azle area, Lake Worth area of Texas, depending on who you ask. We've been almost together for a decade at this point. So during today's show, we're going to do a little looking back and talk about how our past experiences are steering our future plans. Because there are some things that we really gained when we moved here and we brought the animals in. And we got the larger piece of land and all. But along the way, things happened like I, I just thought about, like, what is your vegetable production compared to what it was with your six crappy little raised beds on your third acre in Arlington, Texas? And the answer is lower. It was lower. Especially before we brought the aquatics and the aquaponics systems in. And our first year in aquaponics, we learned some things. We, we went overkill on the shade cloth, and that hurt production as well. Um, this year, I think we'll produce more food from a vegetative standpoint than we've ever produced in our lives. And part of that is, hey, look, this does do some things better, but there's some things we lost. So there's a lot of that experience going back those 10 years plus, you know, the 10 years that I was a gardener with my little homesteads uh, before we even started the show and going back to being a kid. We talked about yesterday. Oh, by the way, I heard from so many people yesterday who really liked the show on Growing Children in a Garden, that I broke out the meat of the show, put a bunch of kids' pictures, kids gardening there, and I put that on YouTube as a standalone. There'll be a link in today's show notes if you haven't seen it already. That's a good one to share with people that maybe need a soft entry into the world of preparedness, uh, into the world of TSP. Anyway, and remember, whenever you share the show, you do help me. So that's another way you can help us out. So let's get into what we got going on out here. So... One of the big things I've already done this year is I purchased an awful lot of seed. I, I got you guys discounts from Eden Brothers and, um, and Any Seed, uh, Any Seed last year and Eden Brothers this year, and they're just both great suppliers of some stuff that's hard to find in bulk. So, I mean, I did some common stuff in bulk like parsley and purple top turnip and daikon radish and things like that. Uh, but I've also got some other you know stuff that's a lot more difficult to find in bulk like nasturtium. I got that from Eden Brothers, and I've got a ton of squash seed and stuff like that, and a lot of that's been spread, and a lot of the bigger seed that's really better planted maybe another two to three weeks or even a month from now, like the squash and nasturtium, even though some was planted, just to see how it does, that will be planted into the berms in, in the coming weeks and, and months. And I have a product called the Stand-In Plant. I'll see if they sell the thing on Amazon. If not, I'll find where you can. Because when I bought it, they were not available on Amazon. But basically, you could build one out of PVC pipe, but it seemed like too much of a pain in the ass for me, so I bought one. And it is not built out of PVC pipe, the one you buy it is formed. And it basically, it's a big, long tube. It's about four foot tall. And it's got a little thing, well, like a handle with like a, uh, kind of like mule tape, like pull tape for electrical pulling, um, attached down to a lever. And there's a point. You stick it in the ground, and you drop a seed down it, and you squeeze it, and that opens a little mouth, like a little duck mouth. And the seed goes in the ground, you let go, it closes, you pull it out. So a lot of the larger seeds will be planted not just in the food forest berms, but in some other strategic places using uh, the stand-in plant. But that's uh, going to be 
probably a lot more productive than it's been in the past. I've done this before, and one of the reasons we did make a decision to deduct the property is, well, they eat it all. I mean, really, they eat every single bit of it. When you talk about a, a flock of a hundred odd some odd ducks moving through a property, they're pretty hard when, when it comes, especially right at the point that that stuff comes up. And if I had had a bigger property where we could let it get bigger before they were in it and kind of stage it out, it might have been a little bit more doable. But remember, the reason we're getting rid of the ducks isn't this like this is the byproduct of getting rid of the ducks. We're getting rid of the ducks because, frankly, Dorothy has two grandchildren to take care of five days a week now. And she doesn't really want to run the business anymore. And I didn't want to run the business in the first place. I just built the system so she could run the business. So we're doing this as a lifestyle change, too. And everything that we're doing this year really is about a lifestyle change. Uh, but we've got those seeds sown, and I've got all the berms in both the big food forest and the, the small, like, zone one food forest mulched with straw. And uh, we're just waiting for that next, next round of spring rains. And that's all ready to go. Uh, about half the trees on the property right now are either just breaking bud or they're in full bloom flower or they've already flowered and they have fruit set. And I put out a video today of the three-quarter acre main food forest, a walkthrough, and you can see that. And the other half of the trees are just, now they're just not awake yet. It's just too early in the year. They're kind of snoozing, and that's cool too. And uh, so we're, we're kind of watching that come around. We... Had some successes this year that have been elusive for the last four years. We have a apricot tree that Nick Ferguson named Plano Man Apricot. And the reason he did that is there was this guy that used to work with my partner, Neil, who we both just mocked all the time. He was like the typical person from Plano, yuppie Plano guy. And he would talk about how his dinner party, he made a apricot-coated pork loin. And I was like, that's like I think it's the only thing this guy knew how to make. So uh, when we, were, we, we realized we didn't know what kind of apricot this is. And by now, I, th I think it's a Blenheim apricot, but we didn't really know, so nicknamed it Plano Man. So the Plano Man apricot tree was one of the only trees already planted on the property when we moved here that was worth keeping. Uh, the guy that was here before me did try to grow some fruit trees poorly, I might add. And this tree seemed solid, and we, what we did, it kind of took off. But it, it budded out and bloomed in early February for the last three years. So you know what happened. First of all, there was nothing else blooming to cross-pollinate with it. But second of all, you know, it looked really good for a few days, and then we'd get a heavy freeze or a rainstorm with freezing rain or whatever, and all the blossoms would fall off, and in four years we've gotten one apricot. It was really good, by the way. Well, this year it's in full bloom now. It held later in the year, and I've seen bees on it all morning long and what have you. So I think we'll get a good Plano Man apricot Uh, harvest this year, and we can make some apricot mead, and maybe even, if we get enough of them, some apricot brandy from uh, from that. So that's really a good thing to see. I've had another peach tree that has always bloomed early on me, very early. It is called an early Alberta, um, but it has always bloomed in February and then gotten the flowers knocked off it. It bloomed in February again. It got about half the flowers knocked off it. But it's got fruit set. It made it through that we had a frost, but it wasn't like a just devastating one. And a lot of those blossoms hung on, and it made it through that, and we were going to get a fruit set on that. So those are two trees that have never produced before that will be producing for us this year that should do really well. 
Um, sand cherries are just starting to leaf out and blossom, and that's great. I've got a, a hundred more sand cherries because they're so damn cheap. And, I, you know, I lose 50% of what I put in. Maybe probably 70% of what I put in I lose, uh, which is being harsh to them. But the ones that survive are amazing. So we're, we're going to put in another hundred sand cherries this year. Uh, and the ones that are here are already kind of uh, going gangbusters for us, or just starting, actually, I should say, to go gangbusters. Uh, the mulberries are either going gangbusters or still dormant. We have white mulberries. Um, sweet lavender is the variety that we have, and they are fantastic. They taste like candy. They, I mean, they taste like somebody took a like a, they made like a mulberry juice flavored sugar cube in it, it, a, a white mulberry. So more like a, like strawberry rolled in sugar is a, the best way I can describe these things. Uh, but they're still asleep. They're just they, they take longer to come out of their their dormancy. But the dwarf mulberries that are like ten feet tall, by the way, dwarfs. Um, that have the big black mulberries that you've seen on my property before, if you've seen my old videos, they are all covered. I mean, covered in you know initial berry set. Uh, we're gonna we're going to be covered in mulberries this year, and there won't be any ducks jumping up and pulling them off the tree either. Uh, so that's cool. Uh, we're, we are gonna put our whole bees in. Back when I had, uh, can't remember the guy's name now, but I do have a discount for you for whole bees. What are whole bees? They live in holes. So they're leaf cutter and mason bees. And after he was on the show and I negotiated a discount for you guys, I was going to order a couple sets of the whole beehives and the bees, and he sent me two for free. So I just haven't uh, put my order in yet for the bees. So I'm going to get those set up this week and get my bees ordered. I have two, two bee certificates to get some leaf cutters and some mason bees. And I'll probably buy some additional ones as well. Um, because we also decided to get rid of the honeybees. And the reason we got rid of the honeybees is I just wasn't taking care of them. And I learned really quick that taking care of honeybees is, you know, it's a job. It's not a full-time job or anything. And it's not something you have to be really dedicated to. But you have to be a little bit dedicated to it. And my bee mentor, Jason, said he would come take care of them for me, and all I would have to do is feed them. And he's got a busy-ass life, too. So he was showing about once a quarter, and that's not enough. And and I just decided that this year, again, I was, I was going for the lifestyle this year. I was going to try to make everything easy and try to make it like if I go on vacation for 10 days and I have somebody that's house-sitting for me, Their job's really easy. They got no customers to deal with. Maybe they pick up a few eggs. I want to, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a bit, but most of the livestock that will be left here will be chickens, a few, few small, tiny, flock chuck chickens and quail. I want to automate as much of that as possible. I want to get those to the point where like, yeah, you might go see them every day, but you could go a week and they wouldn't care. They wouldn't miss you other than, hey, you usually show up and bring some extra stuff when you show up. Uh, so we're trying to really do that. And those whole bees, You know, when, when I realized that your total work per whole beehive, so these little houses with these little straws that go in them, and the bees go in there, and they make babies, and you take them and put them in the refrigerator and set them out in the spring or the summer or the fall, depending on what kind of bee they are, um, that your total work per little house per year was about five minutes, uh, and they're actually better pollinators than honeybees. You don't get any honey, but, you know, they're, they're better pollinators. I'm like, yep. That's what we're going to do. So we're doing that this year. Uh, I also have some trees on order from Rain Tree Nurse or Coldstream Farm, which is one of my favorite places to get trees. And I have repeatedly tried to get you guys a discount there because I feel like there's no conflict with Bob Wells Nursery. Bob Wells Nursery sells, you know, $10, $20, $30 trees. 
uh, that are you know like a, a specific variety, like a Blenheim apricot, for instance. And Coldstream Farm sells like a, you know 25 trees for a dollar a piece. Uh, so I've been trying to get you guys a deal there. They just never get back to me. If I ask a question about customer service, they get back to me. If I tell them, hey, I'm interested in putting you in front of 150,000 people with a discount, they don't answer. And I, I don't understand companies like this. I do understand this. Listen, Jack, off. We don't do discounts, so don't ask anymore. That's fine. Or we appreciate your offer, but we don't do discounts. Or we're not really interested in that, that I get. I don't get companies when you're like, you know, I do a show and I talk to 150,000 people a day and I've already sent you a lot of business and I buy hundreds of dollars worth of shit from you every year and I'm very impressed with you and I'd like to tell you a little bit about my members program and by the way, it won't cost you anything and you can quit anytime you want and you get crickets. It's, it's weird to me. But why do I continue to order from them? Because for the products I ordered this year, they have the best price and the best service, so they still get my business even though they ignore me. Uh, what I have ordered from them this year is Honey Locust. Oh, that sounds horrible, doesn't it? Sorry, Thornless Honey Locust uh, and Native Persimmon. I have 25 of each. Why 25? Because the price difference when you go from 24 to 25 is so stupid. Even if you don't need them, you buy them anyway and give them away. Uh, I have a couple things planned for those. One, our front of our property, we put in irrigation a couple of years ago, and I really think I did it wrong. I ran the irrigation line five feet away from the fence so we could put a tree along the fence and a tree or bush five feet back from the fence. That never really worked out. It made it hard to mow, and there's a major job to be done now, which is basically digging up every sprinkler, cutting it off, putting a T in, laying it down flat with a T, Trenching five feet to the fence and putting it straight up so it's a, so that that pipe can basically be wired to the fence so the dogs will stop breaking them. Cause I do them about two feet high with, with a half inch stand up with a one inch pipe around them. And that keeps the sun from breaking them down and my wife from destroying them with the weed eater. And, uh, then instead of full pattern hedge sprinklers, go to half patterns and only spray from the fence in. And when I do that, I, I really plan on putting a lot of these, uh, these native persimmons that I have ordered along that fence. They're a big, beautiful tree. They have a long overstory mast. Uh, they're very hardy. They should be able to survive with that irrigation there, no problem. Uh, persimmon meat is really good stuff, by the way. Uh, you notice a kind of a correlation there. And they're, you know, they're also a good fodder crop for the birds. Uh, chickens, quail love persimmons. It's high energy crop. Hangs late in the season, all kinds of good stuff. The honey locust, There may be some there. They'll go on some various other support roles. But the reality is, here in this part of Texas, especially on this rocky shelf where trees have a hard time getting down deep root systems, uh, oak mold has just been devastating to the live oaks. And we watched our live oaks, a lot of them that look near death, come back from the oblivion when we started running animals through here. But even with all our efforts, we are on the verge of losing almost every live oak on the property. None of them look good. Half of them are completely dead. Half of them are like we don't know. So what we're going to end up doing with a lot of them is topping them uh, a bit higher than head height, pruning them all off, and if they live, they live, and if they die, they die. Uh, we've planted so many trees, and we've got so much going on. I'm going to put another couple uh, weeping willows in for my wife. That's her favorite tree. She's got three beautiful ones going now. Um, if we hadn't got on it when we did, I mean, this, this place would be almost treeless. Uh, in another two or three years. I'm, I'm convinced of that. So the honey locust, specifically the thornless honey locust, is just a pretty tree. And 
It's got fern-like leaves. That means it's shade, but it lets light through at the same time. That lets you do a lot of still undergrowth growing. It's a nitrogen fixer, so it's a support tree. And Dorothy likes it. And so <clears throat> a lot of places where we're losing these oaks, and we want a big overstory tree there. You know, Maybe it's not the food forest. It's just like we just want trees because trees are nice and pretty. And in Texas, one of your greatest commodities is filtered shade. I mean, that's, that's why I did black locusts all in the far field. And as they grow, they're, they're enhancing that whole thing from the shade properties alone. And by being that fern-like tree that locusts are, both honey and black, you still get light through. So I got 25 of those going in. And, um, again, another round of sand cherries are going in as well. The little chickens are moving uptown, man. They are, they are moving up in housing as soon as the last of the ducks are gone. Uh, so the ducks are beginning to be vacated from the property right now. We're finding new homes for them. And I'm, I'm working really hard to make sure the people that are coming to get them, you know, are not thinking they have a pet duck, because I'm like, my ducks are not pets, and that, you know, they won't be in a confinement. Uh, situation that they'll have some sort of a free range environment because that's how these birds grew up. They're not going to be happy confined. I, I think you can you can confine birds. When I say confined, I don't mean a two foot by two foot cage. You know, I mean like I had the one duckling that's already gone that was in the aviary with the quail, ten foot by fifty foot aviary. That duck never knew anything any different. He was happy. Uh, he was hanging out with his chicken mamas. He was cool. So somebody that has, you know, um, you know, a 20 by 40 uh, yard that keeps chickens, which is about what I have, when, you know, the, where the ducks sleep at night, and that's where those birds are, that's fine. It's different, though, because I've done it. I've tried to do it, and, I, and then my heart got in the way. I've taken birds that have been free-range and tried to tractor them or what have you, and it just, you could tell, like, they'll never be that animal. So if we do have any chickens, I'm sorry, ducks, with our chickens, we'll start with new birds that will be in that kind of chicken area that, uh, that won't know any different. And with a very small flock, we'll be able to, you know, in the evening, let's say two hours before dark, let everybody out without having them do a tremendous amount of damage. And especially if we time that with, like, that's not all year round you get to do that. That's certain times of the year at certain points that they get that freedom. And that way they have that kind of duality. So we're working on that. But the little chickens that are in the aviary right now, um, they're eating the quail eggs, and they're not brooding the quail eggs, which was their purpose. But they produce these wonderful brown little eggs, and they're just great birds, man. They are like kittens. You can just pick them up, and they snuggle with you. So when we have kids and stuff like that that come here to learn, it's nice to have an animal. Like a quail, you can catch a quail easy enough to kick and hold a quail. The quail's like, I want nothing to do with this. I mean, they do this little weird thing with their head where they just look pissed off, like they want to bite you even though they won't. They scare the kids. The chickens are all soft and fluffy. You know, and I got the one speckled one. I can just pin her in my crook of my arm, and that makes the kids feel comfortable and better. So we like them for the eggs. We like them for that. And they do brood. I got one right now trying to go broody again. As soon as I took the chuckling away, the, the duck, you know, they started laying eggs again. Uh, but the one that didn't go broody, I think, the one of the little brown ones, is, uh, is, is kind of hanging in the nest a lot now. So my goal long term is to have these little chickens do something to raise meat for me. And it's not going to be quail. Um, and I don't want to brood. Again, this is all about lifestyle. So I'm thinking, because I raised Dixie Rainbows, Freedom Ranger Reds, they're all the same damn bird, right? I raised those before when we did chickens. And I got all cockerels so we'd have the biggest birds possible out of that meat run of 50, I think is what we did. And inevitably, even when you do that, 
you get some hens. So we ended up with like four out of 50 actually were females. And for the hell of it, to see what happens, because I've heard that these birds can be kept long term, we decided to keep two of the four hens and see what happened. And I'll tell you what happened. They were really big girls who walked around and were very calm and laid brown eggs. So I'm thinking maybe this year I'll do a run of these Freedom Rangers, Dixie Reds, whatever you want to call them, Dixie Rainbows, and keep a rooster and two to four girls and the little chickens all together. They should be fine that way. Uh, as long as that big damn rooster doesn't try to breed those little bantam hens. Maybe I need to give them a little bantam rooster or something, too. Um, she says, it's like, my, these are my girls, those are yours, that type of thing. Anyway, uh, so we'll have a small chicken flock, and they will live in the, what is now the holding area for the ducks. The beauty of this is it'll make them almost completely unlikely candidates for predators because they will go into the chicken house and they will stay in the chicken house at night and maybe we'll get a couple ducks to live with them so that we have what we need for our homestead and to give away to friends kind of what we had before we went commercial with this and it was a lot easier and with that I can automate everything I can automate a door that opens in the morning for them to come out and closes at night when they go to bed you know and I can train those ducks to go to bed with the chickens And to like to sleep over in this area, not underneath the roost, they don't get crapped on. I can do all of that. I can I can set up one or two water tanks for the ducks to be able to swim in that fill themselves and dump themselves on a schedule, and it won't be a big deal because it's only a couple ducks instead of like you know 200 ducks crapping in four tanks. That doesn't work. So I I don't know if we'll be adding ducks back into the system or not, but it's hard for me not to want to do it. Uh, I love my ducks. Don't think this is an easy decision getting rid of them. Uh, a lot of things we're really looking forward to. They haven't been on the two acres of the the east side of the property for like three weeks. And their absence is already showing in a very positive way. The growth rate of stuff here is huge. And what they kind of did is they did hard work for three years. They knocked pests back. They put tremendous fertility on the land, etc. Uh, they built up the fungal and bacterial cycles and things like that. They broke pest cycles. And yeah, I mean, I might have some pest issues that I hadn't previously had while they were here that I'll have to figure out how to deal with. But for the property to go to the next level, they need to go away. They really do. So we'll see how that all works out. Now, the nice thing is, Once the little chickens, the little egg-eating chickens that eat quail eggs only, and how can you blame them? Quail eggs are a delicacy, right? Once they leave, I'll have quail eggs again. And I can go back into some level of meat production on my quail, which I haven't had since the little vampires started eating the eggs. Now, I do have to figure out, like, so how the hell am I going to be able to um, do this with as little effort as possible? I guess the good thing about quail, you only brood them for three weeks. And I don't need to produce that many a, a year for a meat crop, you know, maybe twice or three times a year, and I can produce plenty out of that, out of incubating myself. The other option would be to incubate them while the little bantam chickens are broody, and then when they hatch, put live chicks under the bantams, put some dead eggs under there that they uh, that, that are never going to hatch, or some ceramic eggs or something like that while they're broody, and, and actually take the birds out and give them babies. Well, I've seen that done, and it works. I've never seen it done with quail, but if it works, it works. My deal is I don't mind incubating eggs. It's easy. It's, it's brooding. That's a, that's where all the work is. 
and where all the losses are, right? Now, my other thought was, again, they, we could get some Dixie Rainbows or maybe even just a good dual-purpose chicken, uh, like a Cornish Rock or something like that uh, for our adult birds, and then let the, 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 the little chickens, the bantams that go very broody, brood their eggs and use those as a meat run. The nice thing with that kind of approach, either the Freedom Rangers or something like a Cornish Rock, would be that if we decide, hey, you know what, let's make 10 meat chickens the next time they go broody. The day they go broody, you give them the eggs. Or the day they go broody, you save that day's eggs, you save the next day's eggs, all in one shot, mark the eggs so that if anybody else pops an egg under them, you can pull them out, you take a Sharpie and make a mark on them, that's all you got to do. Then you know your old eggs from your new eggs. You put those 10 eggs under a couple broody bantams, and you just let them go. And you can do that on the fly when the opportunity presents itself. Because the other option, and I, I, I do believe, frankly, from a pure production standpoint, even though I'm not a fan of the breed itself, the Cornish Cross is the best-tasting, best-meat production chicken on the market. It really is. But you're still back to brooding and moving. You can buy Cornish Cross fertilized eggs and hatch your own Cornish Cross. Which means I could order them. They're 95 cents a piece, by the way, at one of the places I found them. So they're a dollar a piece. It's less than chicks. You could order them, put them under your broody chickens, and be good. You could order them and incubate them for half or more time waiting for a broody chicken and get them under there. The problem comes when your broody chicken leaves before you get the eggs or doesn't stay broody, and now you've got eggs halfway brooded. And it's not really that kind of thing where you can, you, I know that bird's good now, here's some eggs. And you're kind of, because you got to wait between the time you order and your eggs show up. So I'm really not sure what we're going to do there, but I really want to increase our, our meat production from poultry, uh, especially now that I have a processor that will process chickens for four bucks. I mean, it's just, I, I don't have time to do it when they do it perfectly for four bucks. So it'd be something I'd like to do. Um, as far as the, egg, the the ducks going away, man, is there a market for ducks? And I think we helped create it. Uh, we put up a Craigslist ad for less than 48 hours. Half our ducks are gone. We're not even sure exactly how many we have. And, you know, people are cherry picking them. Nobody wants the drakes. We have a couple older girls. I don't know what we're going to do with them. Uh, I hate to say it. They might not be in duck sausage by the time it's all over with. Um, people don't generally want drakes. We are giving away free drakes with, you know, if you buy five girls, we'll give you a drake. And we're trying to tell people, like, it's a good thing to have a drake with your flock, and it is. Um, but in the end, we might have to cull uh, quite a few of them. But we, we took the Craigslist ad down because I, it, we were getting inundated with people. And so we're basically, we've got a bunch of them reserved right now, And we're going to get through this weekend, and then we're going to do an inventory of what's left so we have better control. We have so many birds, we really don't even know what we have anymore. So uh, one thing I can say, man, the duck market, people that want ducks on their property is huge. And before we even put the ad up, we actually sold quite a few to our customers. And this was very comforting for me because... Yeah, you know, I don't like seeing them go, and I just ca I caught uh, 10 today for a guy and gave them away, and, you know, you're telling them about, like, oh, I know this bird, this bird's a really good layer, or this one has a really good attitude, or wait, like, this, I actually did this, you know, where it's like, this bird and this bird hang out. So if you want, like, they're, they're, they're buddies. 
So if you want this bird, that's fine. But you're getting this one too, right? And as you tell those stories, you kind of feel bad sending them away, you know. But yeah, you know, in the end, it's okay. It's work. I had to catch them. Now they're gone. Now my other stuff grows. I don't have to do it anymore. So that's good. But when I have to tell a customer who's been buying from us for years, who has health issues, and that and, and our eggs are part of their dietary regime that they're using to deal with their health issues that we're not going to be producing anymore, that's hard. So when some of those have said, well, could we keep six eggs on our property? and you, Or six, six eggs, six ducks on our property? Well, tell me about your property. And they tell you, you go, yeah, okay, well, you know what we do here. Yeah, if you're willing to do the work, sure. And they go, well, we'll buy some ducks and produce our own eggs. That's a win, man. That makes me feel good. And being able to say, here's where to get your feed. Here's what you do. Here's what we've been doing for you for the past three years. Now you can do it for yourself. That feels really good. Uh, on another note, though, we do have between five and six muscovies. I'm not sure on whether that one hen flew away or not. I'm not sure if she's here or not. But only two I've managed to catch this year and clip their wings since they molted and grew their feathers back uh, last year. So four of them are very difficult to catch. And we do have a guy that wants them all if we can catch them. But here's what's going to happen. Either I catch them and they get sold off, or hashtag 22 long rifle. Specifically, I have two young drakes that are huge birds, and after I ate deep-fried Muscovy breast, I, I could eat some more. So the guy that's trying to get them, he might get either a drake in three or a drake in four girls. Uh, we've also kicked around the idea of keeping some Muscovies as meat birds and keeping one drake and a certain number of hens. Um, the issue is if you mess up and you don't get these birds right as they're coming out of molt, these things fly. I mean, they're basically a wild duck that chooses to live on your property. And uh, so it makes it difficult to capture them. So it's something we – and because they fly, they are really good at going to places they're not supposed to go to, like my food forest that I just sowed, all the seeded. And I caught them over there a couple times. And I got to say, Charlie Daniels, our Pitbull Pointer Mix, is the best damn dog I've ever owned in my life. Because all I do now, they usually come in the morning, and they never make it to the food forest. They're on their, I see them on their way. You know how Musco Muscovies are with their little kind of saunter. They're on their way through the backyard, and I see them kind of sauntering together, doing that head thing they do. And I just go, Charlie, there's some ducks outside. I really don't want them. in the, I mean, seriously, this is how I talk to the duck. I really don't want them here. I'd kind of like them back over there. Could you go get rid of them for me? And he'll start wagging his tail. He gets all excited. I open the door, and he runs out. And it's been going on for you know the three or four weeks that we've had the ducks over there now to where he doesn't even have to chase them anymore. As soon as he comes out the door, they're just up, and they fly back across. Uh, but he feels very satisfied in his job. And that's another thing i got to figure out now. Like Charlie has really been a useful force in working with the ducks. I have a group of birds somewhere I don't want them. He moves them. The geese come in the garage to shit. He kicks them out. You know, and I've been able to, I've got them to the point now where a lot of the stuff, he doesn't have to be cold. We, we, there was one day, and this is over a year ago, my buddy David and I were sitting in the garage and we were just bullshitting having a drink. I think we were running some, some, uh, fuel through the fuel still, right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, we're just sitting there talking and the dog's curled up on the couch in the, in the garage because you can totally allow it on the couches in the garage. And he's just sno almost snoring. And all of a sudden, he gets up, and Dave is like, whoa, what? Like, trying to stop him because he sees he's, he's charged up for some reason. I'm like, no, nah, it's fine. And he goes and runs around the couch, and the geese 
were coming in the garage. No one told him anything, and he just knew he heard their 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 feet, you know, that flappy feet on the garage floor. Chases them out. As soon as they're gone, he comes right back, gets up on the couch, does his three circles, and lays back down and went to sleep. It was like puppy power, right? And I've got him to that level where he knows these things and these places are places these animals do not belong, and it gives him a sense of purpose. So I'm going to have to work on finding some more things for him to do. Uh, one of the great things, though, is Charlie and the Bad Bird. Maybe you've never heard the saga of Charlie and the Bad Bird. Who is the Bad Bird? Well, the first Bad Bird was a blue heron who started cleaning one of my garden ponds out of goldfish. So you got a you know a blue heron coming down and eating a, a koi you could sell for fifty dollars or more uh, in in a single gulp. Well, obviously that's not sustainable. So we learned about the bad bird, and so we've taught him that like you have to if you see this bird, it's the bad bird, and you have to chase it, and it, it needs to go away. And if you catch it, it needs to die. Now he's never going to catch it, but that's how he feels. Just chase away the bad bird. But what the bad bird has become is any large bird that's not one of our birds. Uh, black vultures are bad, even though they don't hurt anything. To Charlie, they're bad birds. Because that means hawks are bad birds. Crows are bad birds. So he chases away the bad birds. So even with changing some things, you know, having those little chickens and, and whatnot out in the chicken yard, uh, they will be, you know, vulnerable to avian predators. So that'll be something we can do. But, and we're going to have to figure out some other things for Charlie to do, because he's a working dog. Uh, you've got a bird dog crossed with a, with a pit bull. He needs a outlet for that energy. So we might even have to create some fake stuff for him to do, but that's that's easy to do. I like spending time with my Charlie. On lifestyle, we again, we are trying to set things up to the point where, you know, I did a show recently on the hunter-gatherer style homestead. Where, like, you know, it's, it's five minutes of work in the morning, ten minutes of work in the evening, and you pick some food up along the way. Uh, maybe you want fish tacos tonight, so you throw a hand line in one of the ponds, you pull two or three bluegills out, you, you gut those, you throw them in the compost pit with the chickens, the chickens process that, you know, if there's uh, if there's eggs in there, you take the eggs out, if the spawn, in spawning season like we have, we're heading to right now, you throw the egg sacks into the, the, the tank and the fish eat them, uh, you scale them if you're going to leave the skin on and the chickens eat the scales, and it's just completely integrated into your existence. And so one of the big things that you guys have seen us do this year is we decided that we have saved up money and it's now time to build something I've always wanted, which is a beautiful outdoor kitchen. It's on the final strokes. There's not much left to it. There's a few things for the contractor to finish up, mainly uh, stripping the paint off of the existing patio so we can stain the whole concrete patio a dark brown so it's all... You know, like it's once and done. You don't ever have to mess with it ever again. Uh, and some things they need to clean up. But the, the construction's finished. And uh, we did our first episode of Bill Tong for Breakfast on uh, Saturday. David's doing the editing right now. And if you want to uh, be part of that, go to BillTongForBreakfast.com and sign up for updates. But, you know, a lot of that will be done in the outdoor kitchen. But I am really stoked about having this outdoor space. And I've been waiting for it because we're our kitchen, we redid our kitchen a couple years ago in the house, and it's very nicely done. It's also pretty small. I mean, and there's just like, you could do a lot of things. And we made more space by putting in a huge island that we had custom built and all, and putting bar stools with the island with an overhang and what have you. But it's still cramped for all of our cooking gadgets and things like that. 
And so my thought was, well, once this uh, outdoor kitchen's done, I'll go get this same island that I had from Ikea with these big drawers and stuff and all. And it also has an overhang, so you can put like three bar stools with it. And there's a place for people to sit and eat and visit while you're cooking. And uh, so I went to Ikea, and they don't sell it anymore. And it seems like large, freestanding kitchen islands are a thing of the past. They just... I. I don't know what it is. Now, you can spend a ton of money and get some really nice-looking ones, but they're really not that big. They're not that deep. And, you know, they have to be built a certain way to be out. Even though they're covered, it's going to be an outdoor solution. So I may have to build my own island, or we may actually go to a builder and have a custom island built, but it's a weird thing. Like, we didn't think that would be a problem. The other thing we didn't think would be a problem is finding some furniture. Uh, we're looking for wicker uh, and a sectional. That's a wicker sectional. That's that's what my wife wants. Something that's that's really comfortable, as comfortable as being in the house. Something if you wanted to lay down and take a nap on it, you could. And I feel like until we had the room for it, we were being mocked. Every store we went into had big, beautiful sectionals. And now everything seems like complete crap. Low back, hard cushions, off the you know, small, dinky. Uh, we found a few that are okay, but they're expensive. And okay, fine, they're expensive, but they're not really what we want, and they're expensive. And so far, the best thing we found was at Costco. And it's it's not a sectional, but it is pretty cool. It's four chairs with a fire pit. And these chairs are like big old Captain Kirk, Captain Picard chairs. And they rock and glide, and they rotate and spin all the way around. We're going to stick a TV out there for watching football games and stuff. And the nice thing about that would be this way is the TV. This way is the property. So we don't really know what we're going to do with that yet. And I, it's not really a survival thing. It's not even really uh, uh, important to the homestead, the island, and the uh, the chairs from a, a prepper standpoint or even a pure homesteader side. It's really just a like a leisure thing for me. But I just think it's odd. That these two things are now difficult to find, and everything just seems to be built like crap. But uh, we're looking at some other ways to increase some furniture, some storage out there. Uh, we looked at like Lowe's and just some basic stock cabinetry that's inexpensive, like a hundred bucks, hundred fifty bucks a piece. Um, it really doesn't look great. They're white. But we have this area between the, really where the kitchen is and the outdoor living spaces. And then it goes to a sidewalk that's covered that just runs like a hallway to the garage. And up against the house there, there's like this old window that they, they walled off, but they didn't get rid of when they did the garage conversion and all. And there's about 80 inches of space there. I mean, you probably fit two or three of those cabinets right up against there. They're not, it's a nice dry area. It'll be protected. And just paint them a dark color that kind of fits in. And honestly, back where they would be, you won't even pay attention to them. You'll walk by them like they're not even there. That's just a ton of closed storage. And that can solve a lot of these problems, too, and maybe make, you know, that's the other thing we found with the islands. A lot of the islands are open underneath now. Like, people want, I, I don't want to look at my pots and pans, except for the ones on the pot rack that I put up there, the nice-looking ones. The rest, I want to close that up. If I put a blender down there, I don't want to see it. And uh, so it's just weird to me. Uh, on a completely different note, Uh, over the years, I, I've done a lot of the big workshops here. There were years we did three or four workshops in a year, and we just decided no more of that. And we, so we went to do it in a spring and a fall. And man, I mean, I don't think you guys 
that haven't been here especially understand how much work it is to put together what really is a four-day event. It's because people show up on Wednesday, so you got Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and they don't leave till Sunday morning. So it's a four to five day event, depending on how you look at it and the cleanup and everything. So we just decided, like, we can't do two of these a year. What we want to do is what we did this year, and I think this year and in last year's fall, those two I think are the best ones we've done. And I think this year's fall workshop, we did exactly, we'll do one and we'll do it fantastic. But I also came up with what we called the Work with Jack Weekends, where we do like a Saturday. People show up around 10, and we do some little project or something. We're here till 3 or 4 o'clock. We feed everybody, have some drinks, maybe do a little bit of barter, just hang out, and everybody goes home. And we may do a couple of those this spring. I got some new things coming that I think might be a, a good thing to do with it. One is the the fixing of all the irrigation that I talked about earlier, moving them up against the fence. You know, if I had 10 people here and they broke into two-man teams, five each, you're talking each group does two and we're finished. So that would be, you know, an hour versus hours of, of me doing it or my farmhand doing it, who I'm not sure I trust to splice pipe like that on his own. Right, so I might do that. The other thing we're going to do, and we may do an outdoor or a work with Jack weekend to do this, and probably could do the two together, because a lot of the stuff will be pre-done with this, and it'll be more of the shaping and final what have you. Where the outdoor kitchen is, if you've seen the video, the, the long bar that's all st done with stonework now, is when I'm looking out of my office, it's, I, I see the back of the bar. And from the back of the bar to the end of the house is about 10 feet, plus we can go past that about another 10 feet. So it's like about a 10 by 20 area with some curve to it. And it's a natural slope, obviously, away from the house. And we've put a lot of fill dirt in there already. And we have the, you know, the landscaping things that look like stones that overlap each other. They sell at Home Depot and Lowe's, et cetera, that type of thing. And so we have enough to do a second tier of that. And once we do that, we can bring a bunch more fill in here and have a good 10, 12 inches of fill. For many of you, you think that's not a big deal. For me, on my property, to have 10 inches of good quality fill dirt on top of my four inches of soil before you get to rock, that's huge. That's huge. So my first thought is, we'll just throw an herb garden back there. And then I realized, well, we put this sink in, and the outdoor kitchen is going to get a lot of use. And we could have tied that sink into my septic, because the, the clean-out for the septic is right where the sink is. But we didn't. We ran the sink to just dump out the back wall of the bar onto the ground where the herb garden will be. So one of the things I was going to do is take like the flexible French drain type stuff, the, the pipe, and just run pipe in like a zigzag pattern through there, and then just dump right into that pipe. Well, we looked at it Saturday, David and I did, when we were, were shooting Biltong for breakfast, And we realized it's a perfect opportunity to put a miniature earthwork system in. Just put three or four swales that wrap around the house, back and forth, with overflow sills, and then do all of your planting there and have your pathway be in between the swales and planting your berms. And then that would be when we do a workshop or even just a walkthrough or something and somebody wants to understand earthworks, turn on the sink. I mean, it's that's turn on the sink. And if you want to water it, turn on the sink. You can take a little piece of a two foot piece of leader hose with uh, with one of those uh, mechanical timers for a sprinkler, and once you know that it maybe needs to run for 30 or 45 minutes, hook it up to the faucet, turn it to 35 minutes, turn it on, and walk away. 
And the sink waters the freaking, I mean, it, it's that simple. And, uh, you know, we can put in some other irrigation, but, I mean, that is going to be, every time we wash a dish, we've got a natural system breaking everything down. We'll have to use biogradable dish detergent, but we pretty much do that anyway because we have a septic system. So, you know, I think that's a really great opportunity. Uh, and what will be cool is it'll be a true zone one, almost zone zero thing where, like, you're cooking and you want some basil. Just go around the, around the wall. Boom. Basil, oregano, rosemary, thyme onto the grill. So that's going to be really cool. I'm really excited about that, actually, even though it's a thing that's kind of small. You know, the thing is, again, 2018 is all about harnessing four years of really hard work. We put in infrastructure. We put in earthworks. We did a lot of work with animals. We had good times and bad times. You guys walked through with us. And now it's time to, like, take all of that momentum. Now we have trees that are three and four years old that are producing. And we have new trees going in that, that it, you, it's easier to wait on. A new tree you plant this year to wait two or three years when you have 20, 30, 40 trees that are going to produce for you this year. We've, we've put in a tremendous amount of aquaponics and aquatics. And we've got it to now where like extending what we have is just simple. Put in some racks, put in some more beds, put in some pipe, and just turn it on. And it runs right back in with the other system. Uh, we've got a big aquatic build I want to do this year, but I've got a, a basic aquaponics thing from the indoor one that I want to move outdoors that I'll probably do first. I've made some changes in that plan. Like we were going to do, if you've seen my wood frame pond, I have an eight by eight by three foot tall wood frame pond. It's really like 42 inches tall, but it's about three feet of water and with a bar around it basically where you can lean up against it. I've got, you know, ebb and flow beds sitting up on top of that bar and it's a great tank for fish. Well, I wanted to build one 10 foot by 12 foot and then get a rubber liner and do the same thing. Well, I was down at a place called Atwoods. And they have a stock tank that's 10 feet in diameter and 30 inches deep and holds 1,100 gallons. Well, right where that 10 by 12 was going to go, we're going to put that 10-foot round stock tank. I'm going to take 12-foot 4x4s and build a box around it. And that way it'll only have to come up about 20 inches because we can go about 10 inches down right there before we're to where we just can't go any deeper. And just backfill that box with, with dirt. And then you've got an overhang ledge and all. And so we'll have that that system, and that can be infinitely expandable with wicking beds. And all of these types of systems allow us, with the wicking bed aquaponics, aquatic systems, you set them up till they drain in the winter, and you just shut them down for the winter. You just turn off, then you don't have any pipes breaking or anything, the water that's being pumped is being pumped inside the tank only, and you just shut it off and drain it. And we're trying to do everything like that, because again, we're trying to make this a lifestyle homestead. We want to work. 10 to 30 minutes a day and and have 10 to 30 minutes of work really be like well yeah I was out there for 30 minutes but I was walking around I had a beer I looked at the bad bird and sent Charlie after it then I picked a few peas a few beans uh, adjusted the nozzle on one of the aquaponics systems that slowed down and meandered my ass back in the house we want it to be that kind of a of a, just a happy place to be And uh, so that's kind of where we're at now. And again, it was really, as I've looked back at what we were able to do with, you know, eight raised beds in, in Arkansas and six raised beds in, in Arlington and how much food we were producing and doing actually a lot less work than we, we've been doing here for the last few years because we went so daggone big. And we've gotten things in place now to where there's not really a lot of work to do other than the ducks. So when they go, the work's gone. So then how do we harness all this effort? 
And that's what we're trying to do. And it's, it's something I would advise you to periodically look back at the projects you've done and where you've come from. And is something actually that you're doing now more work and producing less result? And if it is, don't be afraid to back up a little bit. That's, that's part of all this. And experiment and enjoy and love this. Like, even though we're getting rid of the ducks now, I will never regret three years as a redneck hippie duck farmer. I kind of, it's kind of sad that I can't call myself a redneck hippie duck farmer much longer. I just, I've already started referring to myself in Facebook as a redneck hippie farmer. Uh, you know, but that's why I just keep a couple ducks. I still got a couple ducks, right? Um, it's, it's been fun and it's done so much for us and for the property. And I mean, I, I, I just love now that when somebody asks me like, well, I have this problem with my ducks. I'm trying to do this with my, I, I, I know I'm like a duck encyclopedia now from this. So I'm very grateful for that experience. So you can do something to the point where like, okay, I've done that enough now. I've done that enough now. And I've gotten what I wanted from that. And it doesn't fit my life anymore. And you can stop doing it and not regret it. And it's, it's an important lesson in life. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed hearing about our plans today. And if you like this show and the work that I do, do you know there's a completely painless way that you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do? Um, all you have to do is when you're going to do some online shopping, instead of going... Uh, directly to your shopping, go to a website that is T-S-P-A-Z, or easy to remember, tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. When you get there, you'll see all of my reviews on Amazon. You can just cruise on over and see the deals of the day. You can do your shopping. You can do whatever you want to do. And as long as you go there first, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do. But you can take a look at all of my reviews. And I've got stuff from the tactical to the practical, to guns to gardens and everything in between, and a bunch of stuff on cooking. Because as you, if you learned over the years, if you've been a long-time listener, uh, I am a freaking fanatic about cooking. I love to cook. I love the science of it. I love the sense of accomplishment at the end of it. I don't even mind making mistakes. It's like, okay, now I won't do that again. I love learning new things about new ingredients. I like watching cooking shows. We're doing Biltong for breakfast. David Ziegler and I are doing that. We're not doing that as a business unit. We're doing that because it's freaking fun. We, we, we learned a lot from our first shoot. We want to change some things up. I've decided that like, if I'm going to do a cooking show, Everything sliced, diced, ready to go, and just so it's like, okay, we're building this now and just throw it together, right? And and then explain how we're doing it as we're doing that instead of smashing garlic and chopping it up and sitting outside in the heat and doing that. So we're doing that because we're just passionate about it. We enjoy it. And I've learned about a new type of cooking recently uh, from a TV show. I don't remember which one it was. It might have been Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmerman. Don't worry, it's not roaches or bugs or something. It's, it's called tagine cooking, T-A-G-I-N-E, cooking. And it's done with a very uh, ancient method of cooking using uh, clay pots that are shaped kind of like a, almost like a skep beehive, but they're pointed. Uh, kind of look like a smoker, a little mini heater, whatever. But it's basically a clay pot bottom and this, this, uh, this cone-shaped top, a little steam vent, and it's unglazed clay if you use a traditional one, and you have to season it and all. I got in my article how you do that. But the tagine is not the product today. Though I have a link to the one I bought in the article I have for you today, it's a seasoning that I learned about. When I, so I learned about tagine cooking, and then I wanted like, well, how do I make tagine quail or tagine lamb or what have you? And there's a spice mix that's that's a big deal in Morocco called Ras El Hanout. A Ross El Hanout, I guess is the way to say it, right? Like Ross from Ross and Rachel on Friends. L like L in uh, Mexican, uh, Spanish language meaning the. So Ross L, ha, like ha, ha, ha. Newt, like the little salamander thing that swims around in the water. Ross El Hanout. 
And so when I started looking into this, I, I noticed some similarities with curry powder, though it's a lot more complex and backs off a few of the things that are maybe a little bit intense about yellow curries, I guess, that maybe people don't like. Uh, for instance, my wife hates yellow Indian curries, despises it. as soon as she And I love it. I actually do. Uh, but like I, my, my buddy Neil Franklin made curried wings one time. I brought a couple home for her. She was just not about it. This stuff I used last night. I made tajin quail. And she, not in love with the idea of quail, but she ate them. And she was pretty in love with the flavor. But it's like curry in that in Morocco, it's there's no one way to make it. Everybody has their own. And you'll find recipes with anywhere from 20 to 30 different spices in it. This one has 26. So this is a Ras El Hanout uh, spice mix from a company called Spin Pinch Spice Market. I'm going to be trying other stuff from these guys. I am really impressed. 26 spices. Here, here's what's in this stuff. This is why I'm not, I'm big on making, you know, here's the spice grinder, make your own stuff. No, I'm not doing this. Listen to this. Cumin, black pepper, paprika, grains of paradise, coriander, turmeric, cayenne, lemon peel, cinnamon, cardamom, allspice, juniper, nutmeg, galangal, ginger, mace, fenugreek, mustard, clove, aniseed, licorice, rose, lavender, lavender, I'm sorry, lavender, wine, and hibiscus. Uh, I'm not making that. This stuff is freaking awesome. And it does have kind of like a golden yellow to it from the turmeric once you cook with it. It's kind of like an orangey, reddish color when you use it. And I made this with the quail last night. Oh, my God, was it amazing. I can't, I'm going to do a, a tagine venison cook next. Probably won't be doing the tagine cooking on Biltong for breakfast for a little while. i got to dial in, like, time, temperature, etc. The quail last night... They were good, but the breast was a little overcooked. Even though it wasn't dry, it kind of had a dry taste, even though it was juicy, if you've ever had that experience before. The legs that were down in the braising liquid, those were great. I think the quail, you know, those could just be done uh, by being cut up and quartered. I did them whole because they presented really cool. Uh, but if they were quartered before they went in there, they would probably get more of the, in the braising liquid. They could use a little more liquid. It's still dialing in, but this spice mix, oh, good God, it's a cheat code for your kitchen. I, I could see you just coat chicken with this and grill it. I mean, that, that alone would be fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, I can't even begin to imagine how amazing this will go with lamb. And tagine lamb is a big thing. Uh, so you really, I, I think you owe it to yourself to check this stuff out. It's a little spendy. It's like 12 bucks for uh, four ounces. So it's you know about three bucks an ounce. But you don't use a lot. I used two teaspoons last night, still have plenty of it left. I mean, I cook and cook and cook and cook before I run out of it. Uh, I'll tell you another thing that would be fantastic is carrot fries. So you just take carrots and cut them in like the fries size and hit them with some olive oil and sprinkle them with this and then cook them in the convection oven. Oh, my God. I know. I know that'll be just bang on with these things. Sweet potato fries on that would be fantastic, too. Give it a shot. I think you'll like it. If you, if you like yellow curry... You're going to like this. If you don't like yellow curry, but you kind of sort of maybe sort of kind of do, but you don't like certain things about it that are too intense, you'll like this. This is not hot. It's not spicy. It's got a warmingness from the cinnamon. It's, I can't tell, man. I'm like, wow, this is great. And I'm not going to make this myself. There's some stuff in there that I probably wouldn't use for anything but this. Uh, so it just doesn't make sense. Uh, I would say any of these, these spices that have a lot of things that are, hydroscopic like cinnamon, like cardamom once it's ground, etc. Ginger that take moisture up. I don't know how it happens, but if you put them in a vacuum seal bag and tightly vacuum seal them and you get them out in the future, they will be clumped. 
and they will look wet. And I, I, I think there's just moisture. There's some residual moisture in these things. This type of stuff, do it in a zip-top bag, leave some air in it. It seems to work pretty well. Or a jar. Uh, or leave it that comes in a great bag right on its own. Just leave it in its own bag. And that, that's what I would personally do. I don't know why. Like I said, when you vacuum seal, I think what happens is the, the pressure of the vacuum seal pulls the little bit of moisture that's in there out enough to actually cause it to bind with the other components of the spice. So I have gone to any of these types of spice mixes. I do not vacuum seal them. I do think spices, seasonings, etc. belong in your preps. They store easy. They store well. They cost less in bulk. So make sure that's part of your uh, your kitchen preps as well. Anyway, with that, let's talk about our song of the day today. It's Queen Week, uh, Night at the Opera Week, and we are doing a song today from Queen and Freddie Mercury called Radio Gaga that was re released back in 1984, back when I listened to all different kinds of music that was available. And I remember very distinctively when this song came out, and even as a kid I knew exactly what the point was. The music on the radio sucks. I said, it's funny too because this song charted up to like number 16 in, in the United States and number two in, in Great Britain. So the formulaic radio stations that it was mocking that played all the top 40 music, yeah, they had to play it. It was great. Here's, here's a little bit on this song from Song Facts. And the Song Facts are long on it, so I have a link to it. Uh, so you can go read the rest of them. It's pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, Queen drummer Roger Taylor wrote this song. When it charted, all four members of the group had written at least one top 10 hit, either in the U.S. or U.K., Roger Taylor wrote this as a critique of radio stations, which were becoming commercialized and playing the same songs over and over. And this was before radio was deregulated, allowing companies to own multiple radio stations in a market, resulting in more corporate ownership, less competition, and generally bad, shitty radio. I added the shitty part. Taylor claimed that they were, he was inspired to write this after watching MTV. He noticed that lots of kids were watching the channel instead of listening to the radio. Well, that's because MTV was playing shit the radio wasn't. That's why. Uh, the video is based on the 1926 movie Metropolis, directed by Fritz Lang. Queen had to play, uh, pay the German government to use clips of it in the video. Um, originally, this was called Radio Kaka. <laughs> I like that. Radio Kaka. Uh, which was something Roger Tr Taylor's part French son Felix exclaimed one day, Uh, in trying to say the radio was bad, he said Radio Kaka. The phrase stuck with Taylor and inspired the anti-commercial radio themes in the lyrics. Taylor liked the title, but the rest of the group objected and asked to rewrite it. As a result, it went from a song condemning Radio, radio Kaka to praising it Gaga. Interestingly, however, even the final recorded version, the phrase Kaka is present, uh, maybe is a compromise to Taylor. Uh, Queen stole the Live Aid show when Freddie Mercury, battering, battling laryngitis, got everybody in Wembley Stadium singing the chorus of the song. On the video, this is what I thought was interesting, because it's got a kind of a weird, funky clapping sequence in it. The extras in the video got the clapping sequence right off the first try, but it took practice for the members of Queen to get it down. Director David Mallett was surprised the extras picked up the routine so easily, considering they never heard the song, which had not yet been released. Anyway, there's a whole bunch more of really interesting song facts. There's a link in the show notes so you can read it. But this is the song that told radio they were crap, and then radio had to play it. On that note, I have another link in the show notes today, something I've talked about before. I think we've come back to this world of completely crap music. Uh, and it's it, it's by a dude that calls himself on YouTube Sir Mashalot. It's six hit country songs 
mixed together as though they are one song, and other than the fact that different people are singing throughout it, you really can't tell. It It sounds like like a super group made a song, but it's just the same damn song. And I know I've heard from some of you people in music, and you're like, well, there only are so many chords, so you can't just say every song leaves four chords. That's how many there are. I get that. But the lack of innovation and creativity in music is what spurred this, and we're back there in many ways today. And I think it's sad, but... What did we learn yesterday about things like that? Everything in the world runs in cycles. So that means the greatest, most innovative music may be yet to come, but Queen was different back when everybody was the same. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.